From the Institute for Research on Public Policy, this is the Policy Options Podcast. My name is Jiyun Han. I am a research associate at the RPP's Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation. At the Center of Excellence, we strive to build a deeper understanding of Canada as a federal community. As Canada faces several long-term challenges, an aging population, climate change, and an increasingly digital world, questions naturally arise about the durability of the country's infrastructure. Will the structures and connections we have now be able to adapt to the demographic and environmental changes? Building new infrastructure and maintaining or fixing older infrastructure requires a lot of funds, and often it's not clear who will be responsible. It's a classic problem in federalism. Who funds what? In this week's podcast, we'll explore how the structural characteristics of federalism impact Canada's economic development and infrastructure. We'll look at topics like the funding of infrastructure, how to manage regional competitiveness, and the legal and social frameworks that facilitate coordination between the federal and provincial governments. The podcast is based on an event held by the Canada School of Public Service, the third in a series on contemporary issues in Canadian federalism, created through a partnership between the school and the Centre of Excellence on the Canadian Federation. The first two events in the series are also available as podcasts. This third event on economic development, infrastructure, and federalism is moderated by Hugo Sir, Director General at École Nationale d'Administration Publique. Our two panelists are Herb Emery, Bond Chair of Regional Economics at the University of New Brunswick, and Alison O'Leary, Senior Assistant Deputy Minister, Communities and Infrastructure, speaking on her personal perspective on federalism and infrastructure. This episode of the podcast is bilingual, with speakers shifting between English and French. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you again for joining us. Mon nom est Hugo Cyr. Je suis le directeur général de l'École nationale d'administration publique, l'ENAP. I will be your moderator for uh, today's panel. Uh, We have an exciting event planned for you today. We are looking at how federalism impacts economic development and infrastructure. We're doing so with two outstanding speakers, each with unique expertise on the matter. So our first speaker is Professor Herb Emery, the Vaughan Chair in Regional Economics at the University of New Brunswick. Herb's research looks at regional disparities across Canada and how that impacts economic growth in Canada. Alison O'Leary, is the Senior Assistant Deputy Minister of Communities and Infrastructure Programs at Infrastructure Canada. Donc, nous allons procéder de la manière suivante. Herb va tout d'abord nous offrir un bref historique des enjeux d'infrastructure et de fédéralisme au Canada et comment cela est en lien avec les défis contemporains. Et Alison euh, va ensuite euh, prendre la parole pour nous offrir une perspective personnelle sur comment le gouvernement fédéral prend en considération euh, les différents besoins, les besoins variables en infrastructure, et quels sont les outils et structures qui sont en place pour l'atteinte de ces objectifs. Nous passerons ensuite à une discussion sur les enjeux soulevés pendant les présentations et aux questions pour nos panélistes. So again, it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Herb Emery. Herb, over to you. Thanks very much. Is my sound okay? Great. So thanks for the chance to uh, discuss today this exciting topic on infrastructure. Uh, One dimension I hope to bring to the discussion of federalism is that often when economists talk about it, it seems like the principles are fixed in time and it's really just a tension over how we feel about them at different points or maybe changing opportunity costs. But with infrastructure, if we look at a little bit of economic history, we start to understand that the context for the decisions matters as much as the federal relationship federalism relationships. And in particular, over time, we're going to see shifting opportunities, priorities, and values of the population. And those are going to differ by where you live, whether it's your local government decision, provincial or federal. 
And it's really that changing balance, which is creating some of the challenges going forward. And also the perception that's coming in that it has to be government driven uh, to get a lot of projects built. So going through uh, some of that, if I can get things to advance, I wanted to just sort of lay out what I think of when I talk about infrastructure. And one, it is, it's the basic physical and organizational structures and facilities needed for the operation of a society or enterprise. And so again, it's very broad when we start, it's gonna be buildings, roads, power supplies, it could be other organizations that help organize uh, collective action in society, but that's not gonna be helpful for us getting to data because we don't count this stuff. So I'm gonna get a bit narrower, uh, see where I can get to. I think I missed one. <laughs> Sorry, this is the broad definition. I'm having a bit of stickiness between my mouse and my keyboard, so I apologize for that. If we ask where is all this infrastructure located, the simplest way to think of it is a picture of North America at night. And what you see wherever there's light is there's a lot of capital and there's a lot of infrastructure. And when we start the Canadian project after Confederation, there wasn't a lot of capital and infrastructure on a lot of this map. And so a lot of the initial project that we think of with Canada was opening it up and putting a lot of that capital in. But today what we're looking in is where the light is the brightest, we're trying to make it glow brighter. And that's leading to a very different uh, dimension around provinces that are a little dimmer on this map, but have opportunities for resource development are now struggling with the very bright spots on the map that are demanding that they become even brighter with more population and more capital. If we narrow the infrastructure definition down a little further, it's usually thought of by people in the general public as large capital intensive natural monopolies. So often highways, other transport facilities, water and sewer lines. And then the other dimension that people often think of is it's often publicly owned. And increasingly over time, what we see is the discussion of infrastructure is switched from that broad definition I gave you to one that ends up being the tangible capital stock owned by the public sector. And as you get to that kind of narrowing, you can start to see that it's gonna put shackles on what you're allowed to think about in terms of opportunities and developments and even who should pay. Because as soon as we say owned by the public sector, we're automatically making decisions about finance, uh, who gets to decide and who gets to set priorities. Now, what do we know about public infrastructure stocks and why do we need to pay attention to it? Well, for one thing, we don't measure a lot of, we don't have great data on infrastructure in Canada. This was a really good paper written I think around 2004, uh, that showed the value of the Canadian uh, public capital stock is up to 2002, and it was worth about $200 billion in 2015 purchasing power. So 75% of this infrastructure uh, is owned by provincial and local governments, and it's been rising to over 90% in 2002, mostly because what we've seen over time is a shift from provincially owned and controlled capital to local government owned and controlled capital. It's really important to notice that where the federal government used to be more important before we had the big expansion of local and provincial capital, because the federal uh, capital stock's been fairly stagnant, is the federal government is not a big owner of infrastructure, but the provinces and the local governments are. And so this is where federalism starts to reach a challenge. The money is seen as residing with the federal government, but the construction and the ownership of the assets is gonna be provincial and local. So who's going to pay for it? Uh, and this largely reflects that much of our urban, much of our economic growth since the 1960s has been urban growth and development. And unlike the historic period, which was much more around uh, hinterland resource development. So as we've shifted from developing the hinterland for resources for export to much more of a knowledge-based urban economy, we're starting to see that shift in who owns the capital stock and who's responsible for maintaining it. And this is where the tensions come in. If you've been through Trevor's talk, Trevor Toome, you know that the revenue powers reside disproportionately with the federal government compared to the other levels of government. If you think of it in, in a tangible way, this is the skyline of Toronto from 2001 to 2014 to 2022. This is a pretty profound transformation of a skyline reflecting all of that construction and all of that population growth that's been going on. And they, the economy today, only 20 years on, is dramatically different than it was in 2000, which was only about seven years after the NAFTA free trade agreement. 
So as we've been going through this, this urban dynamic is becoming more and more important to where we're going to build and what we see our priorities as being. And just to break it up with a bit of humor, it's also turns out with this urbanization, we're getting more critters moving to the city. So apparently in New Brunswick, the raccoons prefer urban life to rural. So it's a big transformation all around. A big issue is, do we have enough infrastructure? Well, one of the things we have to pay attention to is that infrastructure investment is lumpy and we tend to build it all at once. And we tend to build too much because we're building it for the future as well. So when I take that previous diagram, which showed you the value of federal, provincial, and local capital stocks and divide by population, what we see is that the value of public capital per person has been declining. And what has been built on things like highways, roads, uh, water, water treatment, and sanitary sewers, some of that balance has been changing. But overall, what we see is this declining value of public capital per person. Some people interpret this as a problem or a deficit. But in a lot of cases, what we may be seeing is that we're actually growing into the capital stock that we built in the first place. And the issue is maybe historically we overbuilt and the challenges going forward is are we going to make the same mistake again or how do we know we've got the right size? And so this is going to be a challenge of when we build. To give you more context, this is infrastructure expenditure up until 1976. What I show you on the right-hand panel, new construction and institutions and government departments, covers things like hospital education universities, which we often think of as big assets. They're tiny compared to what we see just over in things like uh, electric power, water transportation, motor transportation, and rail. And in particular, the electric power one dominates most of our infrastructure spending historically. And it's about to dominate it again with the transition to net zero. And so when we think about scale, the kinds of things that governments are muddling around with trying to figure out with the roads, the schools, and the hospitals, it's actually quite small compared to some of the other infrastructure needs that might be coming in like pipelines, uh, switching from telephone to uh, fiber optic cable, maybe now to satellite. And we're going to see these transitions that start to drive different types of needs and it's going to also shift who should be building them. Focusing on publicly owned infrastructure is also misleading. It's mostly telling us about highways, roads, and sewers, and it's reflective often of uh, investments with localized benefits, and they're often non-pecuniary, meaning you can't get a revenue source off of them, but they are improving quality of life. That's a different thing than building a road in to develop a mine, building a nicer road so that you have a shorter commute to work. You can't monetize it necessarily the same way, but I'll come back to that, that's a choice. But the kinds of infrastructure projects we're building are going to have different financial aspects because they're not necessarily, not necessarily generating monetary returns. Most infrastructure in Canada is developed, operated, maintained by private owners, not the government. Rail, pipeline, telecommunications, power, We've uh, divested previously publicly owned infrastructure assets, which were privatized and sold. What we're looking for increasingly going forward is private construction and operation based on tolled capital. So we're going to put toll booths on bridges. We're going to put toll booths on highways. And we're going to recoup our capital costs through pricing. We're going to go to things like regulated natural monopolies and crown corporations as well. This is how we can start to build on a scale that may not be possible for governments to think about. So I'm asking you to stretch your mind when we talk about infrastructure and a role of government to going beyond what the government builds and owns to one which is what can the government stimulate, uh, finance, and help recoup the costs, and what's the priority for doing it. Infrastructure supported by the federal government, not built and operated, but supported, uh, historically reflected the standard government argument that the federal government should be involved in projects where there's a benefit spillover. So if you're going to build a railway to the prairies to settle them to create a larger home market for Canada, that investment project had a spillover benefit for Canadians living in eastern Canada, so it made sense to use federal dollars or federal incentives to open up that project. But what we're seeing increasingly today is that the federal government is getting involved in jurisdictional decisions where there is no broader spillover benefit from the local population. So we're starting to see federal dollars for infrastructure going to things like local museums, rec centers, playhouses, public transit, but it's not the same kind of logic in the past that they were building things that had that broader national benefit. The other thing that was happening in the first phase or earlier is things were being built ahead of demand to open up the hinterland 
as an economic opportunity. That discussion is ongoing right now in terms of Arctic economic development, but it's not going very far. Or you'll often see work upon the Northern Corridor for infrastructure, which is getting sort of a pre-approved route so that you can put the pipelines and the telecommunication lines and everything's in. The second stage, which is really what we're stuck in now, is the connecting and filling in stage. So we're trying to encourage integration of regional economies. And we're also doing the last mile stuff to do more inclusive growth. So last mile broadband, making sure everybody's connected. Uh, but a lot of things that wind up getting built are to encourage integration of regional economies. This would have a spillover benefit, but not always. So again, we need to think about what's the logic for each level of government being responsible. Uh, infrastructure supported by provincial and local governments, where they often want the federal government to pay, is aimed at retaining more wealth from the exports generated in their region. If they can have more competitive transportation, cheaper energy, better communication services, then they can use their infrastructure to keep more of the wealth local because they're going to attract capital to the local economy. So maintaining your local airports and industrial parks is a big priority. You can also do things to attract population that improve amenity value of the location. This is the rec centers, playhouses, arenas, and swimming pools. But these are more about wealth redistribution across regions as opposed to wealth creation. And so again, it can be pretty tricky deciding when is it wealth creation and when is it redistribution. But in these cases, this would be a, a situation where you would expect the local tax bases to be paying for it, not the federal government. You get indivisible investments, which creates the lumpiness. And if this is especially the case in uh, transportation communications, is that you can't build part of a network, you have to build the entire network. It doesn't help you to have a highway that goes halfway from Toronto to Montreal. You need the whole highway in order to get the benefit. So with transportation, we've seen transformations from wagon roads to canals, to rail to asphalt roads. Now it looks like we're going back to rail again. Communication, we had telegraph to telephone, to fiber optic cable and the internet, radio, television. Now we're looking at satellites. So each time technology changes in the opportunities, we're building networks, which is going to create some indivisibilities and create high needs for money. For energy, when we went to long distance transportation and transmission of energy, we had to build all that infrastructure to ship things and make sure it could get there. We may be going through a period of time where we can decentralize energy sources again with things like small modular reactors where you can have more local generation without tying into a much larger grid. That's going to start competing with things like the Atlantic Loop to integrate the regional electricity system of Atlantic Canada with Labrador and Quebec. It could be that we can, could instead be investing in generation that is decentralized and more for local generation. Uh, decarbonization of the energy system is going to require massive upfront investment in new generation transmission, charging stations and rail, and they're going to have to be done in a hurry. It's not something that can really follow the technology or you won't make the transition. So think about the indivisibilities that will come in. Uh, just quickly, an example of this. The panel on the left shows the rail network in New Brunswick in 1940. The middle panel shows you what it looks like today as we've torn up the rails. And what we replaced it with is basically highways. And with that transition, we went from private finance of construction, which was rail, to now we have a publicly owned and operated system, which is the roads. And so switching from rail to road wasn't just a change in technology, it was also a change in finance and who's going to pay for it. And so when we go through these decisions with new technologies coming in and what are we going to do, we're always going to have to make decisions. Do we let the market produce it or do we leave it to the government to sort of direct how they want it to go and figure out how to operate? With the lumpy investments, it's also important as we're heading into a recession potentially, most infrastructure is built during boom times, not during recessionary times. So there's a lot of infrastructure building when expectations for the economy are high, not low. When you get new technologies or modalities for doing things, when you get new resource developments, with strong growth and flush government budgets, you get access to capital markets, which is critical. If you don't have that opportunity, then you can't get the capital to build. And it also turns out we build a lot of infrastructure whenever the country has a numbered birthday like 100 or 150. We seem to build a lot of infrastructure all at once. And if you live in New Brunswick, all that centennial uh, construction in 1967 has now hit its lifespan and they're having to replace it. So it's leading to a lot of lumpiness around that birth date. Those are interesting facts, but so what? 
Well, the issue of investment, is it adequate or sufficient in Canada? This problem with the lumpiness and ahead of demand means we've kind of inherited infrastructure and it may not be the right stuff that we need today. So when people in 1970 made decisions about where we were going to be living and where how we were going to be living with what technology, they couldn't have anticipated what Toronto was going to look like. They couldn't have anticipated the hollowing out of the rural network of communities and things like that. So what we have is a spatial distribution uh, of infrastructure that may not match what we need today. It's locked in on an older urban network. And the vintage of the infrastructure may be wrong because we overinvested in technologies that haven't lasted like copper telephone lines, when really today we need satellites. And so this challenge when we lock in on a technology is we're making decisions that are going to affect the future. And we may decide that things are okay for a while, but we start to discover the schools are in the wrong place or we locked in on the wrong technology uh, compared to other countries that just waited a bit longer to see what was gonna take off. Is it really hydro generation or do we want small modular nuclear reactors? So again, the challenge we're dealing with with infrastructure deficits isn't just the age, it's often uh, we've got the wrong stuff because it was built on expectations of a future that didn't come to fruition, like Winnipeg never did become Chicago, but they built it big enough to be that. And so this is where when we're making decisions today, we have to be a little humble about our ability to forecast what the future is going to look like. In the past, the financing infrastructure was, ins was surmountable, largely because there were boom times. So when you go back to how did we get so many railways built around uh, Prairie Settlement, most of it was because we had expectations 100 million people would be living in Western Canada today. That didn't happen, but we got three transcontinental railways anyway. So expectations can be really important for this. The government's expectations over its ability to finance with uh, different types of incentives. It could be cash, it could be land grants, it could be loan guarantees. Uh, the focus on direct public investment in infrastructure and challenges of finance are a more recent thing because of political decisions we've made. We've made investments in what we called public goods, which are technically things that we can't exclude people from using. And if we use them, they don't use it up for other people. But often what we've done instead is we've called public goods things that really don't have a monetary uh, stream attached to them. They're non-pecuniary benefits that can't be monetized. So community assets became public goods rather than public goods that are important for competitiveness. We also made decisions that things that we call public goods really aren't. We could toll on them. We can't exclude people from using them, but politically that's very difficult to do. So putting a toll booth on a bridge in Montreal today is a politically contentious thing after the previous bridge didn't have a toll bridge on it or didn't have a toll on it. So we've made choices not to toll things that could be privately owned and operated, including public transit. Now, you can give lots of good reasons why public transit should be subsidized. You could even give a reason that we shouldn't have fares on it at all. But again, we need to recognize that this isn't dictated by the destiny of economics. These are political choices. The other thing we have to recognize, and I'm probably running out of time, so just cut me off if I'm going too long, is that historically, we made decisions when we built infrastructure, we didn't price in the future costs of maintenance and replacement. So one reason that we had the illusion that public infrastructure was so cheap is that unlike a private owner, we didn't have to figure out how we were gonna pay for its sustainability. And so what we have today is a lot of liabilities of the previous decisions are coming home right at the time where we need to be investing in new stuff. So we shifted costs to the future, which is now limiting what we can build. And it's the problem of living with this legacy capital that wasn't financed in the correct way because the expectations were growth in the future would pay for it. And now it's turning out that growth was strong, but it didn't produce the revenue we needed to maintain that capital stock. The other problem is that public ownership and pay-as-you-go finance, along with cost sharing from senior levels of government, in other words, grants from the federal government, distorts local decision-making. If you don't make locals pay for the project through user fees or their own tax base, they're going to ask you for a lot of stuff. And so when you have this competition of everyone going to Ottawa saying, please build our tunnel, please build our bridge, please build our playhouse, you're going to get a lot of asks for the project because it's ignoring the fact that they're not facing the full tax price. And this is something that has to be reconciled. And again, as the federal government increasingly talks directly to mayors, it's creating a problem because in the past they could have had the premiers play the bad guy 
But now we've got premiers and mayors competing for the love and attention of the federal government. The last point I just want to make is that the national interest has shifted. It used to be about regions and hinterlands opening things up for population to grow and getting that urban network, but increasingly it's a focus on large cities. And so when we have things like a rural strategy federally to get infrastructure in, we're now competing with much larger populations who would like to see it in the cities. Merci, Hugo, et merci, Herb. Thank you for that uh, presentation. So good afternoon. Uh, I uh, am Alison O'Leary. Before I do begin, uh, I would like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the Nitakinan, the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabeg Algonquin Nation, whose presence in the Ottawa Gatineau area reaches back to time immemorial. The other thing I'd like to mention off the top is that uh, the views I'm about to express are my own. They come from practical experience. I fully admit I don't know everything, but I did spend a couple of years as the Assistant Deputy Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Privy Council Office. And for the past four years, I've worked at Infrastructure Canada, where I'm currently the Senior Assistant Deputy Minister for Infrastructure Programming. So I think one of the things that I wanted to start off, and Herb, I think this will build uh, a bit on uh, what you were uh, talking about, um, is why is infrastructure important? So I'll give you some facts in a few minutes, but first I would invite you to just think about your day-to-day -day life. How did you get to the office today? Did you ride your bike on a bike path? We call that active transportation. Did you drive over roads or bridges? Did you take public transit? That's all infrastructure. Maybe you're working from home. Before you started, did you turn on the dishwasher or throw in a load of laundry? you're dependent in those circumstances on water and wastewater infrastructure. What are you going to do tonight? Are you going to take your kids to hockey practice? Are you going to play badminton at the local community center? Are you going to go to a museum? We call that community, culture, and recreation infrastructure. So those are just some examples of how infrastructure contributes to your everyday quality of life. In addition, investments in infrastructure contribute to increased productivity, economic growth, and support jobs. So I promise you some facts, so here goes. So a report by the government of Ontario outlines that infrastructure investments in public transit can positively impact productivity in the long-term. Transit investments can help reduce traffic congestion and travel times, thus increasing the available time for work activities and reducing lost productivity. According to uh, a Deloitte report, infrastructure investment returns up to 2.7 times its initial outlay. According to the Global Infrastructure Hub's 2020 sub study, public infrastructure investment has an economic multiplier of 1.5 times the investment in two to five years, higher than other forms of public spending. We've also all heard a lot about supply chains this past year, and infrastructure plays a key role in getting things where they need to be. The World Bank has touched on how infrastructure supports sustainable growth, given that investments in energy and transportation networks directly impact the movement of people and goods through reduced delivery costs, facilitation of physical mobility, and fewer productivity constraints. And jobs. Greater employment is certainly enabled through infrastructure investments. We all saw firsthand through the COVID-19 pandemic how important digital connectivity and broadband infrastructure is to support the ability to work remotely, to connect with your loved ones, and to support e-commerce. The list goes on. More broadly, a 2021 IMF report showed that 1 million US dollars in infrastructure investment generated three to seven jobs in advanced economies and even more in developing ones. So this is nice and all, but to your point, Herb, why does the federal government care? You might be asking yourself, although you did already answer the question, if the federal government actually owns your local community center or the cell towers that you see as you drive down Highway 7. So as, uh, as you mentioned, well, no, in Canada, the majority, more than 60% of public infrastructure is owned by municipal governments, and another 30% or so is owned by provincial and territorial governments. The federal government and Indigenous communities together make up the balance in terms of infrastructure ownership. And the private sector also plays a key ownership role in some types of infrastructure assets. So think broadband, think telecom. And the nonprofit sector is also an important partner in things like community-focused infrastructure projects. So what I would argue is that the federal government can bring to the table is threefold. One is the money. Two is the setting of national objectives and in incentivization towards them. 
and three is convening power and coordination. So let's talk about the money first. The reality is that building and maintaining infrastructure is just plain pricey. I remember when I first came into the infrastructure department, I was really taken aback by all those zeros at the end of the numbers that I was seeing. Four years into working uh, in a department responsible for very large quantums in federal funding programs, now the joke is that I don't get out of bed for less than a billion dollars. But kidding aside, federal fiscal capacity is important in supporting long-term sustainable infrastructure costs across the country. Now let's talk about national objectives. Like with uh, many areas of work across federal government departments, there are instances where the national interest and local priorities might not always align. Sometimes because of political dynamics, sometimes because at the end of the day, it just happens that different levels of government have different priorities, different needs, or frankly, different time horizons to address things that they care about, think election cycles. So this is where the federal government has an opportunity to work in collaboration with other levels of government while leveraging its fiscal capacity to deliver funding programs in a way that aligns with federal objectives or incentivizes towards them. So I thought it might be helpful to give a few examples. One is resilience. So we've all witnessed um, some of the devastating uh, events that have happened in this country in recent years. The flooding events in BC, water contamination in Iqaluit, Hurricane Fiona in the Atlantic, among others. So the federal government through departments like public safety, of course responds in the aftermath, but the more proactive approach is to plan ahead and to work to build more resilient infrastructure before disasters happen. So the federal government plays a role in supporting communities to develop asset management plans. It shares information on building codes and standards, and it offers funding programs to support infrastructure projects that adapt to and mitigate against climate-related natural disasters before they happen. So Infrastructure Canada's Disaster Mitigation and Adaptation Fund, which launched in 2018, and has a current total envelope of almost $4 billion does exactly that. You can also think about climate change. So the federal government plays a role in driving investments toward infrastructure projects that work to address climate change, such as investing in retrofits of public buildings to increase their energy efficiency, building net zero buildings, or investing in public uh, transit projects to help reduce GHG emissions. For example, in 2021, the federal government announced $3 billion per year beginning in 2026, 27, to support public transit projects across the country. And we're working uh, right now to consult on and uh, design the program uh, that would deliver that funding. You can also think about social inclusion. So the pandemic certainly highlighted the social disparities that exist for many vulnerable groups across the country and invest, infrastructure investments targeted towards underserved communities can make a really important difference. So another example, we have a, a green and inclusive buildings program that uses Statistics Canada's multi-deprivation index as one of the central tools for assessing and prioritizing project applications aimed at retrofitting or constructing publicly accessible community buildings to create, for example, safe spaces for urban kids to gather after school, or to create wellness centers in indigenous communities, things that can make a real difference in people's lives. One of the other things that the federal government is really focused on right now is housing supply and affordability and homelessness. These are real challenges that are facing this country. So one of the things that we're working on in real time right now is looking at ways to better link issues related to infrastructure and housing. We're actively working on how to leverage, leverage the fiscal capacity of the federal government with infrastructure funding that it brings to the table to incentivize actions on the part of provincial, territorial, and municipal actors to address the housing crisis. So for example, in budget 2022, the federal government signaled its intention to tie access to infrastructure funding to actions taken by those local actors uh, to increase housing supply. So as we enter into the renewal of the agreements that govern the $2.3 billion in annual funding transfers under the Canada Community Building Fund, formerly the Gas Tax Fund, this will be one of the key federal objectives to advance. So that's why the federal government cares. I think that is um, how we can sometimes look at what, how, how we match up local interests, provincial and territorial jurisdiction, and 
national, federal objectives. But one of the things that I've really learned to appreciate in working in this uh, space is that's a really big country. And there are many actors that have a role and, a, and have a view when it comes to talking about infrastructure investments. You talked a bit about it uh, earlier, uh, Herb. Different regions across the country have different needs and require different levels of infrastructure investments. So think about remote communities where construction costs are just by nature higher. There's logistical challenges in terms of building infrastructure. Think about short shipping seasons, reliance on sea lifts to get materials in. In some rural and remote areas, access to high-speed internet does remain inaccessible or unaffordable. Although progress is being made with investments from colleagues at Innovation Science and Economic Development. In urban areas like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, continued investment in public trans transit and active, active transportation is critical to help people get around. In other places, it's more roads and bridges that are the ways that people stay con connected. In some places, finding ways to repair, maintain, and upgrade water and wastewater infrastructure is critical to ensure that access to clean drinking water exists and to minimize loss due to things as simple as leaky pipes. So in fact, one of the things that we're working on right now is to fulfill the government's commitment to accelerate the use of the remaining funds in the $33 billion Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program. A lot of progress has been made since this program was set up in 2017. And this is one that's delivered through bilateral agreements with provinces and territories. But as we work through the last few billions at the end, what we've observed is that taking a cookie cutter approach to structuring funding agreements exactly the same across all jurisdictions doesn't necessarily reflect the different contexts across this really big country. So we're working really closely with provinces and territories as I speak to look at what we might be able to do to take into account those uh, different realities. And this is um, giving us real-time insights and lessons learned into how we might take a more nuanced approach next time around. At the federal level, we're also working to really understand and build the ev evidence base for what this country's infrastructure needs are. This is really critical, especially when you think about the order of magnitude of the dollars that we're talking about. So the Global Infrastructure Hub extrapolates, if you take current global infrastructure investments, which is $2.3 trillion with a T in 2022, and if you extrapolate that out, we can expect a total global investment in infrastructure of $63 trillion with a T dollars from now until 2040. So even a small portion of that here in Canada is a lot of money. And even us at Infrastructure Canada with a multi-billion dollar program funding envelopes that we have, we simply can't cover everything. So that's why we need to work with partners across the country to come to grips with what the true needs are, where the gaps exist, and how we can collaborate to, to address them. So one of the other things that we're doing is working uh, to launch Canada's first national infrastructure assessment. So we're currently seeking input from the public, from Indigenous peoples, provinces, territories, municipalities, and stakeholders on how to address Canada's infrastructure needs, establishing a long-term vision, improving coordination amongst infrastructure owners and funders, and determining the best ways to fund and finance infrastructure. So once this is in place, it will help to identify Canada's evolving needs and priorities in the built environment to try to take that longer term uh, vision and to uh, undertake evidence-based long-term planning towards a net zero emissions future. So maybe the last thing I'd wanna say in terms of um, the federalism piece of things, the reason that you're all here, is that the infrastructure landscape in Canada is such that the better coordinated all level, levels of government are, the more effective our collective infrastructure investments will be. So the federal government, I would argue, is perfectly within reason to put parameters around the funding that it offers to ensure that projects, that those dollars help, help to advance and contribute to national objectives. Provinces and territories regular, regularly also contribute their own funds towards those same projects and know very well the specific context of their own jurisdictions. And municipalities and Indigenous communities are the local actors that largely own and operate the very infrastructure we're talking about, 
and they have a firsthand understanding of the practical needs and development plans of their communities. So finding ways to ensure that everyone is steering in the same direction, or at least trying to, and using a mix of program tools to bring different levels of government to the table to work to align our objectives, incentivize desired outcomes, that's a key federal role in the Canadian context. So maybe I'll stop there and thank you for your time. And uh, I'll turn it back to Hugh, uh, to you, Hugo. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Alison, for uh, this uh, presentation. So now we'll move on to a series of questions. Um, I, I will ask a first one. Um, what means of coordination with provincial and territorial governments have proved to be most successful or satisfactory for all partners and stakeholders uh, in light of your experience or uh, in terms of uh, your historical analysis? Uh, well, in my case, I think the answer is whenever you can get the other level of government to pay, everybody seems happier. And the real challenge when we've been looking at challenges of municipal finances, trying to get the balance right between the local beneficiaries bearing the appropriate cost and future beneficiaries. And so there's some complicated things about the equity of the fair finance of these projects between taxpayers represented by different levels of government matching benefit to cost or if I pay for this for you will I will you get something in return in the future when you have a project and that's part of the complication that's come in is increasingly it's just turned into more of a story federally of Ottawa has the money the province and the cities don't so Ottawa needs to pay and I don't think that's the right model and again, we need to go back to thinking about, again, as Allison put it so well, once Ottawa defines its national objectives, it really becomes a matter of figuring out how do you design the program to align the interests uh, with achieving that with the appropriate financial incentives to do it. And you can't just sort of let it, what I worry about is it becomes politically driven. You can get votes by building nice things for people and spreading it around. But as we're trying to go to net zero and things like that, we're going to have to be a little more uh, tough love on some of these things because everybody wants Ottawa to pay for the transition. But in a lot of cases, we're going to have to pay for it through local rates, uh, particularly through electricity. So again, we need to be convening the conversations about how do we determine that fair share, the national priority saying you can't use coal past 2030 with the additional cost of the generation assets and transmission you have to bring in, who's going to pay for that? And how much is Ottawa? How much is the provincial utility? Or in some cases, is this Ottawa's opportunity to say, forget these provincial utilities, it's time to regionally integrate the grid. And again, that's another discussion that provinces may be resistant to, but it may be in our long run interest to start having not provincial utilities, but having much larger regional players uh, that would serve the whole region. But I'm kind of rambling now. It's just, it's a very complicated question in my mind, and I don't have an easy answer for it. Thank you. I might I'll just see. add, yeah, yes. I might just add. So I think that that's a, a great answer. If I look at it more from a program delivery kind of place, the, the fact is that there's always just too much demand to go around, right? So whether we deliver programs that, um, you know, we take project applications in directly from municipalities, indigenous communities, what have you, or if the provinces and territories do that and then bring us projects, at the end of the day, whatever level of government is doing that kind of sorting, is gonna to have to say no to a bunch of people, right? Like we've got programming that has this many billion dollars or provinces and territories have this many dollars and there's always just too many asks to go around. So that's why I think it is really, really important to try as hard as we can, no matter what type of, of delivery tool you're using to really look at what are we trying to achieve here? And then really set the frame for bringing projects in to allow us in the public service to provide an objective assessment of what the asks are and our best advice in terms of this is how these projects stack up against what we're trying to achieve, whether that's resilience, whether that's climate adaptation, whether that's, you know, social inclusion, what have you, or, you know, just 
you know, sometimes people need playgrounds and that's fine. Um, but really making sure that we know what we're trying to do and that other levels of government know what we're trying to do so that we can try to sort of do the sorting and the, the assessment of what rises to the top in a coordinated fashion. So uh, you touched upon uh, just in the last comment, uh, the issue of uh, there's a difference between maintenance of infrastructure and development of new infrastructures. And um, what are the uh, long-term challenges that uh, you foresee uh, emerging for economic development and infra infrastructures in Canada? And, and if you can also focus your answer on, on how is federalism offering opportunities and challenges to meeting those uh, new uh, emerging issues? Well, ideally, when you build something, you put into place some method of financing the ongoing maintenance and replacement and even expansion if you need to do it. If instead what you do is you just build it and say future generations can figure it out, then you're going to build a hole in the budget that's going to lead to things like degraded infrastructure uh, because it's, it's more popular to build something new than fix it. And if you own a house, you know that, that your electric panel is less exciting to fix than to build on an addition off the back kind of thing. So with a lot of it, again, what I liked about the Canadian Infrastructure Bank model was that by bringing in effectively infrastructure that has a price or toll attached to it, often with private ownership and operation could be an outcome, is you would be building into the finance of that project, the ongoing sustainability and maintenance of uh, that capital in a way that often a publicly built or publicly supported build with no ongoing revenue source would not. I think the city of Toronto experimented with that when they proposed to toll the Gardner Expressway in 427. And the Wynn government was not keen on doing that because of the reaction of voters outside of the <laughs> outside of Toronto. But it completely changed Toronto's finance model when they were going to get a bigger share of gas tax than if they could have toll revenues. And so we need to think about putting revenue sources on a lot of this infrastructure because that will solve a lot of the ongoing maintenance problem. But politically, that's really unpopular. Even public-private partnerships have been unpopular for a lot of things. But again, if we're just going to build it and create a liability for generations in the future, which we're now starting to see a lot of those liabilities today, um, especially in our region where all those centennial builds of 1967 are now crumbling and we have a, a dam nearby that we have a $5 billion liability. It has to be refurbished and there's no revenue source to do it. <laughs> so it's uh, these aren't little problems when you don't finance the maintenance. And so it's something that has to be done, I think, going forward when you build is you need to be able to account for that. And I also think there needs to be more discussion about deleting infrastructure that should be replaced by the new asset, as opposed to you now maintain two assets. And to what extent would you say federalism uh, is offering opportunities or challenges to, to meet those? Uh... Well, I think that when you have a, a break, there's no price put on the construction or the toll or the finance, you tend to overbuild because everyone thinks it's free. And if you get too big an asset for your population, you've got a bigger maintenance problem down the road because the rate base, let's say it's electrical assets, you're not going to be able to pay for it. You're going to be continually asking for some kind of federal injection or you're going to be borrowing. So the role of federalism, I think, in these cases is to go back to think about who's the beneficiary of the project. And the more local it is, the larger the share of finance should be going local. If it's got a spillover benefit to the rest of the country and we're going to underbuild, let's say, as a small province, then the Ottawa should be stepping in to help us build bigger so that the full uh, possibility of that project comes to fruition. That might be a case with an intertie on a transmission uh, line through New Brunswick to the Northeast United States so that we can get more power exports, something as simple as that. That New Brunswick self-interest wouldn't build it, but Ottawa could enable that to happen. Uh, federally, we just need to think about, our, is our interest in provinces doing the decisions or do we want Ottawa regionalizing more and more of these decisions so that we can build them on a scale that makes us more competitive, uh, integrates us better into the rest of the country and you know, is just more sustainable in the long run. But again, it, I think it's the federalism aspect comes in through the finance and just the priority setting and the decisions uh, that you're gonna make. 
Okay, thank you. Alison? I think I, I would just build on that to say, you know, some of that also goes back to data and evidence, right? And really having transparency and the ability for um, people to see and understand what is the infrastructure that we have across this country and what in what state is it? So really looking at some of um, uh, the opportunities that we have as a federal government to collect and then share back um, objective data and evidence, I think is really, really uh, important. The other thing um, that, you know, we're living through right now is I talked about the kind of many billions of dollars in program funding envelopes that we have uh, under our responsibility, but we're actually um, committing quite a bit of those funds. So we're looking right now at what might be the next generation of infrastructure programming that the federal government stands up. And so that's a real opportunity, I think, for different levels of government to bring their views to the table, um, share their data and their evidence, and allow us as um, the public service contingent to really um, try to piece together and uh, analyze where do we stand? Where are those needs across the country? What are the challenges that people are facing? So operating uh, expenses, for sure, that's a real thing. Typically, that hasn't been something that we fund as a federal government. We bring more of the capital aspect to the table. Also looking at things that are happening right now in terms of inflation and cost escalation. What implications is that going to have down the road? Um, and you know, how do we take all of that into consideration as we think through how we might design and deliver infrastructure programming uh, down the road? So I think it's a it's an interesting time um, to be in this position and to really be looking at some of those really important things because I think your point is bang on, um, Herb the decisions that are taken today, tomorrow, next year, do have very long-term implications. And sometimes it's easy to forget that. That's it for this week's episode of the Policy Options Podcast. Please check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook under the handle at RRPP and visit us at rrpp.org. I am June Han, and on behalf of everyone at the Institute for Research on Public Policy, thank you for listening.